So we reached the halfway point of this fasa. The Patimoka Upozata Day. Good opportunity to reflect on our practice thus far in the pansa. Maybe to review our commitment to the practice Perhaps at the beginning of Vasa we made resolutions to practice in a certain way, take on certain practices. We can review our efforts, the results of our efforts over the last six weeks. Based on what we see, we can maybe make further resolutions, determinations to practice or take on practices. We can adjust. You have the opportunity to adjust to uh, bring up effort where maybe it's lacking relax where we may be too tense and so on. When we do review our practice it's useful to go back to the roots, the initial causes why we came into the robes, into the monastery. re-establish the understanding of what the purpose of the practice is and why we do it. To bring up some of that uh, inspiration and faith and confidence that uh, brought us here. Most of us we have had insights into the nature of existence as human beings. Notice the sense of discontent, dissatisfaction that as human beings we experience continuously, both in the short term from moment to moment in our daily life and then maybe over the long term as well as the nature of human existence is bound up with dukkha most of us came to Buddhism wanting to practice or interested in meditation because 
we can see the immediate benefits of practicing meditation in calming the mind down to deal with some of that day-to-day discontent, dissatisfaction that we might have noticed. And with that sense of calm and peace, then that allows us to look and examine our lives and understand them better to see the source of this discontent and dissatisfaction that we experience. To take the teachings that the Buddha gave and actually bring them in to our hearts, our minds and compare what we've heard or read with our own experience. This is what meditation and the development of a calm state of mind facilitates, supports, is actually investigating truth and using the teachings go a little bit deeper to understand where all this discontent, dissatisfaction comes from and how to deal with it wisely. We can see that discontent is, is something that manifests movements of the mind all the time grasping at experience with a sense of me and mine much of our experience is not so pleasant it's uh, very ordinary and often Unpleasant as well. Pain of body, pain of mind. Not getting what we want, not getting pleasant experiences all the time. So we have discontent, dissatisfaction arising. Prompting us to always seek more kinds of pleasure and happiness, either short term or long term thinking that that will solve our problem. So our daily experience tends to be like this, seeking the pleasant, getting caught up with discontent, dissatisfaction with the unpleasant. Most of our life is on this level, very superficial, especially in the lay life. We probably can remember back very superficially caught up into the the way the world appears to us and the experience of pleasure and pain, satisfaction, dissatisfaction that comes on a daily basis and deluded by it. 
we come to meditate like this, we're looking more closely at it and seeing that only by calming the mind down do we have any sense of peace or relief from this sense of discontent. And only then can we really look closely at it, what it is, and understand better how to free ourselves from it. When we experience a calm state of mind, calm, peaceful mental states arising from meditation, and then we're starting to get in touch with that which is more real, real to our experience and we get the reflection that that which we're normally bound up with the pleasure and the pain is more unreal more superficial it's only the mind that is still and quiet that that starts to become obvious or clear And at first this often is just an intuition, just a sort of a fleeting insight, which often disappears and we get caught back up into the superficial attachment to the world and confusion of the world that we're normally caught up in. So we have to keep practicing keep coming back to the practice of meditation, keep quietening the mind, developing mindfulness, clear comprehension, samadhi, so that we can investigate and see more clearly the truth. When your mind starts to quieten down and become still, then you can see a lot of your own habits of behavior, the way we think, speak, act. You can see the conditioning process at work. And we can see how all this discontent, confusion comes up, where it's coming from, where we grasp at it with a sense of self. With a peaceful mind we can also see it in society around us. We can see other people in that way. How people are pushed around by their mental defilements, their kilesa, and grasping at pleasure and becoming discontent with unpleasant, painful experiences. So we can learn in both these ways, learn from ourselves, learn from other people around us, the world around us. But to do that we have to develop this sense of inner peace where the mind is quiet enough to actually observe truth, observe the reality of what's going on. Otherwise we're forever caught up in just endless thinking and proliferation on this superficial level endlessly thinking, liking this, wanting this, wanting to get rid of that, moving here, moving there, mentally moving here, moving there, 
verbally moving here, moving there, physically moving here, moving there. We have to get some stillness in order to observe and see clearly that how we are conditioned in that way. It's when we get to experience some peace, some stillness, then the mind sees through the superficiality of all this liking and disliking and doesn't grasp it as a self anymore and then becomes tired of it, no longer so caught up in it, wants to, prefers to be more with the stillness and the quietness of mindfulness and wisdom. But we have to work at that to achieve that. Sometimes it comes easier, sometimes it's harder, hard work, because of the power of our kilesa and the way they condition the mind, they affect the mind. The whole point of the Buddhist teachings, the Buddhist path, is that they give us a direction to follow in our daily life, how to use our body, speech and mind towards the ending of defilement, seeing through defilement, ending it, abandoning it. They give us a direction As long as you're traveling in the right direction, then it's okay. Then you have the chance to develop some peace and some insight. In the beginning, even the very desire to practice, you can say, well, it's still a kind of mental defilement. It's not yet true wisdom. It's not yet the wisdom of the Buddha. It's just pointing to that wisdom. But that's good enough. We have to accept that in the beginning. We've had some insights, some understanding of suffering and its cause, but we haven't yet completely freed ourselves from suffering. But never mind, we have at least some insight that we can use as our direction to follow in our daily life. And we use the results of our practice just to review and see whether we're still practicing going in the right direction. Whether we're experiencing more peace, more clarity, more understanding, or the sense of confusion and getting caught up with the superficiality of the world is increasing. You know, we can observe that over time just to check whether we're still heading in the right direction. So we have to accept even the, the path of practice is still bound up with kilesa and attachment and even some delusion. But it's leading us out of that, it takes us in the right direction. This is why we have this experience where sometimes we have insight or sometimes the mind is very peaceful and then other times it's back to square one it seems, back to a lot of defilements, confusion, no peace of mind. Back and forth that way.
Well, little by little, because we are heading in the right direction, some of the qualities, the mindfulness, the samadhi, the wisdom, and the virtues, the sila, they start to be established and they don't disappear so much. They start to remain because we're heading in the right direction. They stay with the mind. They don't all just disappear. We can see the value of wise reflection, yoniso manasikara, learning to direct the mind to consider carefully our experience rather than just always reacting with our emotions, liking and disliking. We're starting to examine things more carefully and training the mind, training, using our, our mind to actually look more carefully at what's going on. And we can do this even if we haven't yet developed deep samadhi. We're just training the mind every day as different mental states come up to bother us, different kinds of suffering come up. We can just stop and ask ourselves, what's going on here? What is this? Is this really me? Is this really real? Or is this just creations of the mind, of delusion, of defilement? And we can train ourselves in this wise reflection. Even if in the beginning it's on a very superficial level, it's still cutting through defilement and taking us in this right direction, the development of the path that leads to the end of suffering. And this can bring its value at any time. You're learning to just wisely reflect on things, even when the mind is very uptight or upset or in a turmoil or very down, very depressed, whatever. At any opportunity, we have the chance to just bring up some wisdom that we've learnt, start applying it to our experience. Say, is this real? Is this really me? Is this mine? using the framework that the Buddha gave, the Four Noble Truths, reflecting on these five candors as they are, rather than just following every emotional reaction and getting caught up in, into it. This is the way wisdom develops and supports the deepening of the practice of samadhi. can see all the practitioners who've developed the path before us. You know, they, they must have done this same thing. It's not that everybody practices in exactly the same way. Each individual will be developing some techniques and some ways of reflecting that are very individual because we all have our different characters, different defilements, different personalities. But everybody must have learned these sort of basic principles, basic techniques, where they've learned to start turning back and reflecting on what's going on in their mind. 
Why is the mind all over the place? Why does it get confused, upset? Why does it get worried, angry? Why is it always grasping at experience, wanting things, seeking happiness, dissatisfied, discontent with a lack of happiness and so on? Every practitioner has trained themselves in one way or other to start looking at this, find ways to calm the mind down and then look at the experience and then counter, go against some of those delusions that are causing all this trouble. Then we have to develop some creativity and use our imagination in the practice, use our, our own ability to think and reason. But this is the way that the practice progresses by using the mind in this way rather than always just being a victim of our emotions and the superficial changes of the world around us and so on. can look at practitioners, whether it's hearing stories about different teachers in the modern era, because in the time of the Buddha, there's many lessons to be learnt. We might not be exactly the same as each practitioner that we've heard or read about, but we can see how they were using their mind to their own benefit, to their advantage, to understand more deeply why they're suffering, what's it coming from, how to abandon it, you know, using the Four Noble Truths as a, a way of reflection, and then applying themselves to the practice. Sometimes it's helpful to read or hear about these teachers, these or the, the bhikkhus in the time of the Buddha, and someone like, Yasa, the first arahant after the uh, five ascetics, after the Buddha gave his first teachings in the deer park, the next person to come and receive teachings and become enlightened was Yasa, the son of the wealthy, wealthy merchant. His mother was Sujata, the, the lady who had given milk rice to the Buddha on the day of his enlightenment in the morning. They're living quite nearby. Yasa had, um, in previous life, had many occasions to make great barami, make Great offerings, it's notable is being a, say, being a Naga king with a great retinue and supported the Buddha Samadha and all his monks. So particularly from that life, in this life as Yasa, he was born to a wealthy merchant, to a very wealthy family who didn't have to want anything or want for anything. His father loved him so much, built, built him three palaces for the three seasons, hot season, rainy season, cold season. He's constantly surrounded by sensuality, 
He had everything he wanted, music and food and women all around him. He was married, but he was still surrounded by maidens, musicians, dancing girls and so on. In his palaces there was hardly any men around, it was all women serving him, serving on his every need. But still the power of his old Barami, good karma, came through, gave him insight in the middle of all of that sensuality and sensual happiness. So the one time, one night, woke up in the middle of the night and just saw all the dancing maidens and musicians, all of them asleep, but saw them in a different light from usual. Just saw them all. They were lying down, some of them were snoring, some of them were dribbling, their hair all over the place, their clothing dishevelled, all lying around very unmindfully, sleeping. He looked on them and saw them as something very unattractive. All the usual delusion of the attractiveness of the sensual world, the glitter, the beauty, at least temporarily, was parted from his mind. A veil is lifted and temporarily saw the unattractive side of all that. The great sense of dispassion, boredom arose in the mind, turning away, realizing this isn't ultimate happiness, this is just fleeting happiness, constantly getting what you want in sensual terms pleasant, the pleasures of the senses. But for him it was such a strong insight that came out and actually drove him to want to leave the palace at that very time. He thought, I just can't stand this anymore, it's enough. I'm off to find my spiritual path to go out into the forest to practice with a spiritual teacher. And the devas, knowing his potential with Barami, they helped just keep things quiet as he decided to just walk out of the palace. Nobody woke, woke up, nobody saw him, and he just headed off into the forest, walking for a long time until he came to the Buddha. He arrived the, where the Buddha was at dawn, and the Buddha was walking Jonkrom, saw him coming, sat down, and received him. And he'd been walking out with the thought, oh, this place is really confusing confusing and troublesome, even though he had every sensual pleasure, sensual delight a person could want. He actually could see the confusion, the trouble in all of that, the distraction and the lack of peace. So he moved out walked out and got to the Buddha and he said, is here confusing and troublesome? And the Buddha, knowing his state of mind, said, no, here is not confusing, it's not troublesome. It's peaceful. That was enough to put his mind at rest, so he sat down feeling a bit relieved in the presence of the Buddha. And that sense of relief and peace was a good foundation for him to start receiving Dhamma. So the Buddha gave him a Dhamma talk on the benefits of 
sila and bhavana and turning away from sensuality, developing wisdom into the an insight into the four noble truths. Listening to that talk because his mind was feeling peaceful, having left the confusion of of sensual delight and all that it brings, coming into a peaceful forest with the Buddha, his mind was peaceful. He understood the Dhamma very well. The mind just accepted the teaching on the four noble truths and had the insight. So the Patimagapala arose, insight, just seeing that. All conditioned things are subject to arising, subject to cessation. They say the Barami, the good karma that led to him having this insight, that led him to leave the palace, this summer palace on that day. Or the, the rainy season palace on that day was that in a previous life he had been with his friends he'd done a lot of dana of burying the dead dead people who had had no relatives to perform funerals for them they'd gone out as an act of compassion would bury particularly poor people people without relatives and sometimes they would bury young women and in one case there was a young woman who was pregnant and they buried her and or cremated her I'm not sure which but just contemplated the uh, unattractiveness of the, the human body even a, a beautiful young lady can die and then the body decomposed and then it was cremated became just bones and then ashes that kind of contemplation having developed that in previous lives through through that practice of performing funerals for poor people came through in this life he had those images of a super when he saw the all the dancing girls and that asleep around him you could understand the Dhamma very well when the Buddha taught to see the limitations of sensuality in the sensual world. So his mind became very, they say at that point, the mind became very pliant, malleable, ready to receive Dhamma because it became peaceful. This is the value of samadhi when the mind becomes peaceful. It can accept Dhamma that normally it's not seeing or not recognizing. The Buddha gave a very standard discourse leading him through to the Four Noble Truths. And the mind could receive all of it. It could see every point that the Buddha was making, whereas before it might have been deluded, caught up into the superficial nature of the world and reality. Now it could see exactly what the Buddha was talking about. So he had his enlightenment experience. Then his parents came looking for him, so worried about him. Their one son, their their love of their life. His father came first to the Buddha, and the Buddha 
perform the psychic feat making Yasa in, uh, invisible to his father. He was sitting there, but his father couldn't see, so the father sat down and the Buddha said, well, if you sit down here, maybe you'll see him sooner or later, maybe he'll be around here. Just the hope of seeing his son calmed the mind of the father down. That was his, the only thing on his mind was the love of his son, the attachment to the son, and the worry about losing his son. So when the Buddha said, well, maybe you'll see him later if you just sit here, that was enough to calm him right down. So again, <coughs> the skill of the Buddha giving somebody some relief from their suffering temporarily puts their mind in a suitable frame to hear Dhamma. And then he gave Yasa's father a Dhamma talk. And he also became established in the Dhamma, or they say, open the Dhamma eye. And having taught his father and his father having his enlightenment experience, then he revealed Yasa to him. And he, the Buddha questioned the father and said, well, Yasa has seen the Dhamma now. Is it appropriate or suitable for him to return to the pleasure palace, to the lay life? And the father had to admit now, the father was enlightened also. Well, it's not appropriate. He should stay. And so the Buddha ordained him, Ehi Bhikkhu Prasampada. And then his... Uh, friends and followers came along later and they were also ordained and his parents became the first Upasakas Upasakas supporting the Buddha enlightened lay supporters of the Buddha You see the importance of the development of samadhi, learning to calm the mind down if it's going to see the Dhamma and really be affected by the Dhamma that the Buddha gave us. We have to keep putting effort into developing mindfulness and samadhi. The quality of the mind that is in samadhi, it gets beyond the hindrances, so it becomes very not only still and quiet, but it becomes receptive to truth, open to truth. It becomes, all these words, malleable, flexible, meaning that you can look at truth in different ways, from different angles. And this is the whole point why, why somebody can start to uproot the causes of Suffering is because their mind is able to look around, turn around and see the sense of self that grasps at the, their experience with liking and disliking as a result and all the confusion and suffering that comes from that. And they're able to turn around and look at an emotion and see, well, this is not really me, not mine. It's just a conditioned state, a mental state that arises, passes away according to conditions. The mind of samadhi, because it's still and the mind is flexible and malleable and workable and able to look and consider things from different angles. In the modern world, they can look outside of the box and they can see the world 
as we experience it from a different angle, a different way. No longer, no longer just grasping at it as a self. When we say the world, it's looking at this body and mind, or the five candors, from a different way, a different perspective. You see, all the Buddha's teachings were teaching how to do this, giving us the tools to do this, developing the virtuous behavior, the sila that calms our body and speech down, and then the samadhi that calms the mind down, and then the wisdom that we training to investigate to look more deeply at our experience and that wisdom is like turning around looking at different angles in and out and the samadhi supports that so the mind can be very focused on just looking at things as they arise in our experience seeing the truth of them rather than just grasping at them grasping at the superficial experience grasping at every thought, every mood, every emotion, grasping at this body as a self, grasping at our thoughts and our emotions as a self. When you do experience some peace of mind, even if it's only for a few minutes, then some of these teachings the Buddha gave and the similes start to become more obvious. The similes for the five candors, like the body being compared with foam, a lump of foam. Like in this, at this time when we have the heavy rains and the water rushes down the mountain, you see in different spots where there's an, a blockage in the stream, then you get foam forming on the surface of the water, like a lump of foam, but it's very, very fragile. You just get a gust of wind and the foam can blow away or anybody treads on it or anything touches it and the foam breaks up or just over time it starts to disintegrate the Buddha said look at the body with the eye of wisdom and you see it just like foam it's just something that's bound to disintegrate it's not really any kind of solid self this body is foam, it's like full of cavities. When we watch the autopsy, you can see the body is full of space and cavities all over the place. It's got holes and spaces around between the organs, between the bones and the skin, it's different spaces and cavities. So it's quite similar to foam. If you can look even deeper, then, you know, if you could see between the cells each cell has space in it and around it and the way the body is bound to disintegrate is just like foam it seems solid from the outside you can see something there that's solid but really inside it's very very fragile won't last for very long certainly not any substantial self when you see that then a lot of other emotions, our fears and worries, our anger, our greed, also is affected, isn't it? If somebody makes you angry but you're seeing the body like a lump of foam, well then what's there to get angry about? What's the threat if you're feeling 
anxious or worried or fearful you know what's the what's the threat what's the what's to be threatened other than just this lump of foam the still mind of samadhi and then wisdom investigating allows us to look at these experiences even very passionate emotions very strong emotions gives us enough chance to just look at them with a, hold the mind's attention and see them as nothing that real the feelings we have pleasure and pain the buddha comp- compared with like this the bubbles of the the raindrops on on the ground or on the surface of water when it is raining you watch the rain fall to the ground or onto a, a puddle and it's just plops of water have ripples send out ripples and disappear you know, feeling is like that it just arises and passes away however strong however strong the pain is or strong the excitement and pleasure and stimulation it's just ripples that keep disappearing so again that feeling we can look at it with a peaceful mind and see it's just ripples and bubbles bubbling up and disappearing again it's nothing real in that it's not correct to take it as a self and get all excited and emotional about those feelings all excited about the pleasure and all depressed and all worried about the pain they are just bubbles on the surface of water rain raindrops creating bubbles perception he compared to a mirage particularly in the hot weather when you see those mirages in the heat or say on a roof shimmering roof or on the surface of a bitumen road the shimmering effect of heat looks like there's water there or looks like there's something there but it's not it's just an, a mirage or if you're out in a wilderness and you sit with strong heat and you can see seems like shapes but it's just a mirage nothing substantial and perception is like that and perception of self perception of what i like what i don't like what is right and wrong all these are just additives is the labels and superficial importance we give to experience but there's nothing solid in that it's just just something we add on one person's labels perceptions can be totally different from another but in their nature in their essence and nothing very real or substantial what seems pleasant can very quickly become unpleasant what's unpleasant can become pleasant what seems to be mine or me can after a while be a, seen as not me not mine and perceptions and memory are very tricky very uncertain 
all the mental formations we have you compare to the the banana tree with all its rounds of flesh but nothing solid in the center endless thoughts in the sense of self the sense of me say our emotional experience we have the feeling and the perception arise and then the thought formations give us emotions worry, anxiety, anger, greed lust, passion the mental formations are just the thoughts around the feelings, the perceptions and the sense of self but there's nothing in them is it it's just endless thoughts coming up wrapping around wrapping a sense of self around our experience viewpoints, opinions likes and dislikes but there's nothing solid in any of that when the mind becomes peaceful in samadhi then that starts to become exposed doesn't it we see how insubstantial all the thought formations we have are so we believe them less we trust them less we're less deluded by the superficial appearance of things and our thoughts about them the mind comes to rest in stillness more peace Sense consciousness like a conjurer's trick. There's a conjurer standing at the crossroads just doing endless tricks like a magician. Any of the, if you've ever seen a magician. Endlessly fooling us with its tricks. If we don't investigate, then the sense, sense world seems very real, doesn't it? We see, we hear, we taste, we smell. It seems very real. And from that reality, again, we build up perceptions, we gain feelings, and we build up perceptions and a sense of self and the substantial nature of this world, bring up a sense of ownership as well. But with your peaceful mind, then you start investigating more closely, examining more closely, just pick one sense at a time, you're seeing what is going on and there's light and there's your eye the light is drawn into the eye and images form they say that the image is formed on the back of your retina how real is that in the sense how much can you grasp but that as a self it's real in the sense there is light and there's an eye, there's physical formation of an eye, there's light, there's consciousness taking in that information. But then straight away <coughs> the delusion is, or the illusion, the illusory trick, the magician's trick is a sense of self forms, I am seeing. And we immediately label what we see, grasp at it, gives us weight in a pleasure and pain and again fuels all kinds of emu emotional responses and all kinds of suffering and confusion distraction trouble problems when mindfulness is established and wisdom is operating it's just seeing is seeing there is light, there's an eye, there's seeing, but seeing is just seeing and the sense of self and grasping at the seeing disappears. Grasping at the hearing disappears. 
or the meaning that we give to what we see, we hear, we taste, disappears. So it's just sense contact arising and passing away without anyone getting involved with it. So the world starts to seem a little bit less solid, less permanent, less enticing. Each one of these reflections on the five candors is breaking down the, the sort of basic delusion and superficial attachment to the, to that which we 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 latch onto in a very superficial way. We come to that which is real, which is the peaceful mind, the still mind inside. That's what we can really know and put confidence in. And that's where in the Buddha's teachings start to become real and the direction that we've been following previously, which was maybe sort of generally heading in the right direction, but a little bit unsure, still subject to doubt, still sometimes falling back into confusion. And if we experience the peaceful, still mind, then that confusion is dissipated all the more. There's still a chance for subtle confusion, but much less than before. If you experience the peaceful mind, the still mind, you know, beyond the hindrances for a while, then everything else becomes much less important to the mind. Much more superficial, it's just stuff arising, passing away. And this phrase I use over and over again in the suttas. That which is subject to arising, subject to cessation. The Dhamma eye sees that. Sees that's the nature of the five kendas and the world around us. It's the mind, the underlying peaceful mind, the still and, and wisdom is functioning working well is what sees that the result of that is less of this discontent less of this confusion dissatisfaction because there's nothing to cause that the mind is not grasping at that which just disintegrates or arises and passes away it's not identifying with it as a self anymore. It's going to the stillness of the quiet mind where wisdom and mindfulness are functioning and working well. And with that you get a sense of fullness or completeness. The whole point of the peaceful mind is that it seems very, feels very content, satisfied, complete. So it's not looking anymore with craving. It's not rushing off with craving after different sense objects. It's not looking for anything in the world. And that gives us a chance to actually see the nature of the world. If you're not craving and grasping at it, we can see it for what it is. When craving takes over the mind, then we get caught into liking and disliking, well of course there's no insight and the mind doesn't feel complete and full, it feels very dissatisfied, it feels incomplete, it feels like it's missing things and so it wants more things to make it happy. The mind of samadhi and panya working together feels very full and content and doesn't need anything more to make it happy, it's quite happy within itself. 
even the body is not that important anymore. And just taking the mind itself as a refuge. If we don't do this, then the effect of craving just keeps on deluding us all the time. The mind keeps moving, rushing after the objects of craving, liking and disliking, and there's no end to it. You get one thing, it's not enough, you want another thing. You get one kind of sensual happiness, you want a bit more. Even if you keep getting the sensual happiness that you desire, like yasa, after a while you get used to it. And so the sense of happiness fades and the mind becomes dissatisfied all the more. And there's a, a law of diminishing returns. We just can't keep following craving and endlessly becoming satisfied and filling the mind up that way. Craving won't lead to a sense of inner satisfaction. It just feeds itself, leads to constant dissatisfaction. The mind gets you, even, even if you can keep supplying the objects of craving, getting rid of what you don't want, finding what you do want, the mind still won't settle down, still won't be peaceful. That's why the Buddha said that craving, there's no river as long as the river of craving. Nati dhanha samanati. Cravings like a river or even like a flood, it's called it the yoga, the flood of craving. And uh, this time of year we get all these floods, heavy rains bring down flood waters onto the lower line land. It's, that's like craving, it keeps forming a stream and then gradually floods the whole mind and won't let up. And there's no freedom from craving by just following it you won't satisfy craving by just following it it actually gets worse and worse and worse physically and mentally we get more battered down by craving till it eats us up and we die full of craving and get reborn because of that it's not that's going in the wrong direction when we're practicing with craving or just following craving in the world that's going in the wrong direction away from the Buddha and his teachings seems sometimes to be the right way to go or the easy way to go but in the long picture it's not going to lead us to any satisfaction and that's what that's at least some insight we might be able to have as we practice here in this fasa you can see well the long term outlook is not to follow craving but it's to follow the dhamma let go of craving see craving and abandon it the more we can do that, the more we bring the mind to peace and happiness inside, the more the mind feels full and complete, not wanting anything else, complete with the Dhamma, using the Dhamma, understanding the Dhamma, understands the purpose of Dhamma practice, understands the essence of Dhamma practice, understands the result of the Dhamma practice in the peaceful mind. So I'll leave you with these thoughts for your reflection tonight.